Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice when a law Hello, everybody. This is Shane Claiborne. I'm so glad that you could join me for this little half hour together. We, I always love talking about how our faith intersects with the world that we live in. Uh, as the old saying goes, too many Christians are so heavenly minded that they're not much earthly good. We can end up just talking about going to heaven when we die and forget how much Jesus talked about bringing the the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And these are trying times where uh, I think in, in here in the United States and around the world, there are distortions of Christianity that... Um, are, are using our faith for all kinds of things, um, sometimes as a vehicle to camouflage uh, hatred and nationalism. And in the end, a lot of times it does a lot, it does damage to the credibility and integrity of our faith. And there's a, a close friend of mine who uh, I'm so excited to have as a conversation partner today. Uh, we do a lot of stuff together these days. The Reverend Rob Shank. Hey, buddy, good to see you. Hey, to the <laughs> Reverend Shane Claiborne. I know that's kind of a secret thing for you, but that's how I think of you. Anyway. <laughs> so nice to be with you. And of course, the whole world calls me Rob. So I want yeah. to we so, can drop that pre-nominal. The, the, the proper introduction. Uh, you've done lots of different stuff. Uh, Reverend Rob Shank, Rob, uh, is... Uh, the founding president now of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and uh, pre preserving and reinterpreting the legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we're going to hear more about that. He's also um, written a beautiful book, Costly Grace, an Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope and Love. We've done a lot of work together Um uh, championing life, uh, trying to find alternatives to the death penalty, and working to end gun violence. Uh, Rob's the subject of a great film, award-winning film, The Armor of Light. So we're always looking for an excuse to hang out. And uh, today, uh, I, I asked Rob if we could talk about Bonhoeffer, because there, uh, there's a lot of uh, books on Bonhoeffer. Some are good, some are bad. I won't mention any names, but... Uh... <laughs> But yep. uh, when it comes to the relevancy of someone's life, uh, Bonhoeffer's got a lot to say, you know, uh, to speak to truth to us and um, help us understand how we can bear witness. Uh, and, and I think especially at such a time as this, right, bro? Yeah, that's for sure, Shane. And I think one of the reasons we should talk Bonhoeffer is because he's more relevant than ever, at least in the uh, North American European sectors uh, of the church in particular, but 
in uh, social systems as a whole, most certainly against the political backdrop of our times, whether we're talking about the uh, resurgence of a so-called Christian nationalism in many in many parts of Europe, um, there's certainly signs of it in the UK, but mm. it broke out violently here in the United States. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, with the attack on our capital on January the 6th, now known for just another one of those dates, January 6th in the United States, something like September 11th. And uh, Bunhofer speaks to us on all those matters, and I think gives us a unique way to be bold and strong without matching mm. violence for violence, whether in word or deed. So I, I call him one of the most relevant theologians for our time. Mm, mm. So, and for, yeah, you know, there's some folks that probably uh, have a picture of Bonhoeffer on their wall, like you do behind you. Uh, but uh, there's other folks that my best them, dead like, friend, that's what I call him. <laughs> my best dead friend. Um, there's probably other folks that are, are pretty new. So give us a little like uh, um, backdrop of who Bonhoeffer is. I mean, you know, you don't have to go into a ton of detail because I, I really want to get into the confessing church and like the larger movement and what it means for us today. But for folks that are just hearing that name, maybe for the first time, uh, tell us a little bit about Bonhoeffer. Sure. The reaction I mostly get is people say, yeah, I've heard of him, but that's about <laughs> as far as it goes. Or they might say, yeah, I read a book, I think Cost of Discipleship or Discipleship when I was young, I was in college, whatever. That's one of the first books we read when we started The Simple Way 25 years ago. We read that together and a handful of other books, but it helped shape who, shape who we are. Well, no wonder you're one of my best living friends. <laughs> um, yeah, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young brave, brilliant World War II era church leader in Germany during the rise of National Socialism, read that Nazism, in Germany, and was one of the first religious voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler when after he rose to the chancellorship of Germany in 1933, April of 1933, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio sermon, how apropos that we are on radio, at least uh, in the first instance here with this podcast, we're, we're broadcasting, and of all places in England, uh, in the UK. And, and that's uh, key to Bonhoeffer's story, because uh, he was one of the first to speak out. He did so on a radio interview, uh, excuse me, in a radio sermon, and the sermon broadcast was cut short. No one really knows why. It was mysteriously ended prematurely before he finished. Some people see that as a hostile act, others as coincidental that some kind of technology breakdown. But for whatever reason, that sermon stands in history as one of the first really public challenges to what would become the dictatorship of Adolf Hitler in mm. Germany. 
Bonhoeffer would go on to become a dissident, uh, a contrary voice uh, in, in Nazified Germany. He would become the leader of, as you mentioned, the Confessing Church Movement, a leader, which was a movement within the German Protestant Church. And I remind people that in Germany, it's called the Evangelische Kirche, the Evangelical Church of Germany. And there are parallels with the Evangelical Church, at least in the United States, and its corrupt politicization of its co-optation by the right-wing uh, party in this country, the, the Republican Party. So there are parallels here. And this is why I say Bonhoeffer is more relevant than ever, mm. because what the church did uh, with his leadership and others, including Karl Barth in that period, was uh, to resist the encroachment of the federal government of Germany into its affairs and the exploitation of the Protestant church in Germany for the purposes you just uh, enumerated in, 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 uh, in your introduction, that there are all kinds of people who will use Christianity as a veneer, mm -hmm. as a way of ingratiating itself to a populace it wishes to control. Yeah, And that's what was happening in Germany, and Bonhoeffer was the leader. It would cost him, eventually, his life. Yeah, and we're going to, we're going to get all into it, y'all. This is going to be great. Uh, but there's one, there's one detail that sometimes gets a little confused is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's role in the um, assassination the attempt on Hitler. And people tell the story differently. Um, the way that I heard it, I, I remember in several different places I read about it and heard it. One was the blind spot, uh, the interview with uh, Hitler's secretary, and um, she talks about how they plotted to assassinate Hitler with a, a bomb that was planted under the table, and it went off in just such a way that uh, Hitler was actually protected from it, and it, it didn't kill him. And he went on with more resolve than ever before, believing that God was uh, protecting his mission of uh, obviously, uh, you know, a horrific mission of trying to exterminate and kill and torture Jewish folks and, uh, and others. Um, Many you know, others. And so, so like, uh, but what role Bonhoeffer had on that is a little fuzzy according to different details. So I don't know how you know important it is, but he's known as a pacifist too. You know, he's a champion for life. So um I know how I tell it, but I wanna I want I want to hear from you that little detail before we keep going. <laughs> yeah, well, as they say south of the border in this country, uh es muy complicado. <laughs> it's very complicated. And if you accept the evidence such as it appears to be, which is that he was implicated with the conspirators who included um, actually multiple assassination plots, but the one in particular that you just described, then you have to read between the lines of his magnum opus. Most people know Bonhoeffer for cost of discipleship or life together. Two relatively short but important books but his real central 
corpus of of thought uh, and insight is his tome called Ethics. Mm -hmm. And it's not an easy book to read. It was completed posthumously. It was unfinished at the time uh, that he was hanged by the Nazis by special order of Adolf Hitler uh, in April of 1945, just a couple of weeks before the camp that he was in, Flossenburg, was liberated by uh, the Allies, but in any of the Allied forces. But anyway, all that to say, if you accept that he was part of the conspiracy, then you must read his thought on what he called responsible action, mm. which includes in his thinking, and you get this from his letters and papers from prison as well, which is another volume of his correspondence uh, that was snuck out. Really powerful, yeah. Very powerful, because we see him at his most vulnerable, at his most human. He wasn't just a great mind. He wasn't just a great religious leader. He wasn't just a great moral philosopher and ethicist. He was a real human. Mm -hmm. And we see him at moments when he had suicidal ideations uh, in his prison cell after being separated from his family for almost two years, and on and on it goes. So all that to say, if you accept it, you have to understand his concept of free and responsible action, which in the end can more or less force a person to compromise their their deepest and strongest moral principles for the benefit of others. In other words, what Bonhoeffer says in Ethics is there comes a time when we can be more concerned for our pure conscience than for the welfare of others. Mm. Mm. And we mm. will act to preserve ourselves, even if it's just in preserving our reputation, over preserving the lives and well-being of others. And he says the ultimate act is to surrender one's conscience for the sake of another, and even perhaps incur damnation of one's mm. soul for mm. the benefit of another. That's one way to look at it, and it's really profound. The other way is to read Mark Thiessen Nation on Bonhoeffer as the pacifist, in which he says he's not convinced, and he's quite the scholar and researcher, mm -hmm. that Bonhoeffer was ever involved right. in a conspiracy to assassinate the head of state. He was involved in a conspiracy to bring down the Hitler government for good reason, but not an assassination. So, so good. That's so, I, I think yeah. it's really, uh, it, it's, it's power. We haven't talked about that much. I think it's powerful to like, even just think about it, you know, is, is what, what would we do in that situation? And that's what a lot of folks are asking. Um, you know, what, what would, especially when people are talking about nonviolence or pacifism, well, what do you do with Hitler? That's, you know, the million dollar question. And, um, yet I, I, you know, I, I remain convinced that, um, that violence is always irreconcilable with our, discipleship of Jesus, uh, that, you know, to love our enemies means we shouldn't kill them. But it's really hard to know what you, what we would do in these situations and what love requires of us. You know, like if you're going to, if you're going to say like, uh, love doesn't kill, love's willing to die, then uh, you got to be willing to die. And certainly Bonhoeffer was willing to do that. Um, 
And I think the bigger question too is like, what does it mean for us? You know, like we're not living in uh, Hitler's Germany, but there are similar principalities and powers at work. And so tell us a little bit about what we can learn, you know, before we bring it right down into real time, what we can learn from the bigger movement of the confessing church and how it might like, point us, uh, you know, show us a way forward a little bit today for where we are. Yeah, well, one of the things we learn is that even the very best of movements can go bad. Mm. And that did happen in the confessing church. Uh, in the end, the majority of the thousands of German pastors and other religious figures who signed on to the confessing church to resist the Nazification of the church. And this is really important to understand. You know, some people think, you know, either all Christians sat out mm -hmm. the Nazi, uh, you know, perpetration of horrors, or that, you know, they opposed it. Not so. The majority of Christians, and I'm talking about right down to the most observant, the most pious of Christians in Germany during the period, the Nazi period, actually became complicit mm. with Nazism. They at least were silent because they needed to get along in Nazi Germany and didn't want to raise, you know, their head above the crowd, just keep quiet, go along to get, to get along. So, you know, uh, there's that reality and there are some great volumes, uh, including one that, that gives us the actual church documents that included pastors handing over baptismal records mm. in order to discover uh, clergy with Jewish blood in the church so this happened, it happened even with Salvation Army people, with German pietists, uh, you know, groups, uh, you know, that we would think would sit out, pacifists and so forth. They became part of the Nazi horror. And so there's that lesson that even the best of movements can go bad. And they did in the end. They, they gave up the struggle because it was too great. And Bonhoeffer shows us that when you continue in the struggle to the very end, you will always be lonely. Mm. And he was terribly lonely. When Bonhoeffer died at Flossenburg concentration camp, hanged uh, in the twilight morning hours on April 9th, uh, 1945, he was so alone, people weren't, didn't even know where he was, let alone that he had been murdered. And his own parents had to find out in a BBC mm. uh, radio broadcast in there uh, by shortwave. Uh, so, and by the way, I just have to mention, since I know that you have a big listenership in the UK on this show, that Bonhoeffer was a pastor in London, in mm. Sydenham, and one other congregation, though Sydenham was the principal congregation. And there is the Bonhoeffer Church in Sydenham today. Mm where he was a uh, pastor. So there's a big connection with, with uh, the UK and with London in particular. It was a big part of his story. But all that to say, what we learned from Bonhoeffer is that any human enterprise is extremely complex 
and unique and unrepeatable. And that's what's important about his leadership in 1933. We can't cookie cutter mimic what he did in any form. He would tell you there was only one 1933 Germany, only one Adolf Hitler, only one Nazi regime, only one Holocaust. We must, in the end, this was his key insight. We have to answer the question, what is the will of God for us in our time? Yeah, and that's exactly what I want us to like. make sure we get to, because um I mean, the, the the story of the church in Nazi Germany was both one of faithfulness and failure at the same time. And Hitler, um, you know, one of my mentors said, all you got to do is twist the cross and you get a swastika. And that's what Hitler did. He twisted the cross and used uh, the the gospel for hatred. But he did use the Bible. You know, it's it's interesting when you look at Hitler's words, though, in his writing. He doesn't like mentioning the name of Jesus, <laughs> but no, he refers indeed. to Jesus, right? And the indeed. work that Jesus did to like, you know, cleanse the temple of the Jews. He said, I'm extending that into the world. So he had this really twisted, hateful, anti-Christ theology. And there's different iterations of that, you know, that, I mean, even to this day, the KKK has a whole section of their website about their theology and why it's a Christian organization. Uh, that's what they, they claim. Um, and and so I think it's important to say, like, we're, there's not a, you know, I don't want to make a false equivalency to like, you know, January 9th and, uh, you know, Hitler's Germany, but some of those same forces of using uh Christianity as a vehicle of of to fuel hatred and bigotry, um, some of that, and and to fuel people's fears or this idea, uh, that, you know, some people's lives are are more a reflection of God than others. I mean, that was all there, and some of that still that residue still with us. So, I, I want you to share a little bit too, Rob. Like your own, like your own story, is a part of this trying to be faithful. Um, to Christ, and you are very familiar with the inner workings of some of the apparatus of the religious right and the way that they manipulate religion. And um, so we we we'll, we'll talk more about all the, the 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 your your story. And people should read your book, by the way. Um, Costly Grace is the name of Reverend Rob Shank's book. You got to make sure you check it out. But um, share a little bit more about like how Bonhoeffer's informed who you are, and also how we might be faithful right now in our time? Well, I spent 35 years on the religious right as a political, a religio-political activist. I mean, I was part of that Christian nationalist thinking. I always had a quiet dissent in my own heart and mind that I was not allowed to verbalize. Had I done so, I would have been ejected from that movement, would have lost a lot, and I wasn't ready in those years to pay that price. Ultimately, I would, not as Bonhoeffer did, but I certainly lost my livelihood, and I lost my constituents, and I lost an organization I had spent 35 years building. But all that, you know, was just the consequence of an awakening, and it was reading Bonhoeffer again after a long hiatus it was comparing what happened in Nazified Germany to what was happening here in the United States. Uh, 
with my own evangelical community and ultimately its support for a demagogic fascist named uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, and it was while I was reading about the history of the church in Germany that I realized my own religious community, white evangelicals in the United States, were making the same Faustian pact with a would-be dictator uh, as was made in Germany. Now, again, Adolf Hitler was unique. Donald J. Trump is not Adolf Hitler. But there were parallels in the church's behavior towards those forces mm. that awakened me. And eventually I had to give voice to that, to my conscience. When I did, I was, I became persona non grata in my religious community, all for, for understandable reasons. And I had to begin a new path uh, in my mid-50s. Uh, that hasn't been easy. Uh, but uh, it was certainly worth it. I have no regrets. Uh, mm -hmm. But for me, it was a kind of reconversion back to the gospel I was first introduced to in 1974 uh, when I saw the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, and, mm -hmm. and, and he became compelling to me. Then I forgot him, followed what I now called Ronald Reagan Republican religion, which is a lot like the politicized version of evangelicalism in Nazi Germany, and then had to come back home. And, and I did. And I wrote about it in Costly Grace, which is a borrowed phrase from Bonhoeffer, one of his most famous bar, uh, phrases. Yeah. And now we're doing all kinds of uh organizing together. Um, and one of the things that you're doing and that we're doing together is trying to confront uh, the Christian nationalism. And um, I want you to, in the last minute, share a little bit about the gathering you're doing in um, at Oxford and, and how people can follow it. Yes. Hello, our friends in the UK again. Uh, as we're talking, I'm actually working on a delegation going to Oxford's Harris Manchester College, where black church leaders with white church leaders, uh, very conservative to very progressive of virtually every denomination, including even some who embrace Christian nationalist ideas, will be present with us. And we're going to examine this crisis. I, I think it's one of the greatest threats to the integrity of Christian witness in the world today. We see it in Hungary, we see it forms of it in Poland, certainly in Russia, uh, and we've seen it grotesquely here in the United States. So we're going to examine it, then we're going to report it out, and what happens there will live on for a long time to come. So make sure y'all check that out. We'll have it in the show notes too. And we'll hopefully have some uh, videos and excerpts on, at the Red Letter Christian site. We think the world of Reverend Rob Shank. It's always good to talk to you, buddy. Um, I, Rob and I were together in DC and um, we were at this, well, we were with a bunch of friends and faith leaders talking about Christian nationalism. And you told this story, right, of one of the, the last... Uh, folks that met with Bonhoeffer, and I wanted you to, I wanted you to tell that because it was really powerful. Yeah, sure. Thank you for even remembering it. Um, well, this was about an encounter I had with a gentleman, uh, Dr. Uh, Franz von Hammerstein of Germany, who at the time I met him in 2010, 
was the last living person to have spent time with Bonhoeffer uh, in the days before his execution at Flossenburg concentration camp. So they had been on a prison transport vehicle together. Uh, and uh, before Bonhoeffer was taken to Flossenburg concentration camp, where he was hanged within hours, uh, von Hammerstein was in confinement with him and with several others. So they had a conversation, uh, and uh, von Hammerstein at the time was 17 years old. Mm. He had been arrested for simply being a catechism student of the renowned dissident pastor of that time, Martin Niemöller, uh, who was a famous pastor in Germany, had been a convinced Nazi, uh, was a military chaplain before he took uh, parish work in Grunewald, which was the neighborhood that Bonhoeffer was raised in. And so here's this young kid whose only crime was sitting under the tutelage of a German pastor who happened to be a dissenting voice against the Nazified church. And he was arrested. He was taken to a concentration camp and he was together with Bonhoeffer. So here was this man in his 90s, completely lucid, had all his mental faculties. And I asked him, I said, do you remember the last conversation with Bonhoeffer? He said, oh, absolutely. Of course, I remember it. And he had relived it many times over the years. And he said, we talked about a number of things. Uh, one was, he said, I really have the impression that Bonhoeffer thought he might survive to to the war's end but if he didn't and he he wasn't certain of it at that point he was certainly ready for martyrdom but von hammerstein said he wasn't sure he was preparing for martyrdom mm. so in many ways you know von hammerstein believes that bonhoeffer really only had a matter of hours about three or four hours to process the fact that he was going to be martyred he was going to be hanged. He was condemned in a kangaroo court uh, military tribunal at midnight mm. uh, and hanged at 5 a.m. So we don't know, but he had hours to prepare for this moment of ultimate surrender. Mm. And you have to even picture this because mm. in the actual execution process, each prisoner was responsible to walk up to the gallows take down the prisoner's body who had just been hanged, lay it in a pile, and then take the noose and put it over his own neck, cinch it tight. And only after that did a guard kick out uh, the uh, stool underneath his feet and cause him to asphyxiate. So this was the process Bonhoeffer would go through, and he had watched it several times before he approached the gallows himself naked uh, in this almost self-murder act. Uh, it, it, it was a hideous process. But when von Hammerstein was together with him, he wasn't sure he would suffer uh, actual death. And they talked, and they talked about the church after the war. 
And one of the things Bonhoeffer said to von Hammerstein was first, the church would be required to utterly surrender itself for the repair of the world, for mm -hmm. all the destruction that Germany had brought, all the murder and 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 chaos and trauma and suffering. Mm -hmm. And that it would require the church to surrender itself completely to those who had suffered, including selling all of its properties and giving that money to the poor and to the dislocated uh, and, and to the bereft. Mm. Um, that was one thing. The second was he told von Hammerstein it would be his generation, the younger generation, that would have to lead the church back to a true commitment and lifestyle that reflected Christ mm. and his self-giving of himself. And this chokes me up to think of it because it was so powerful. Mm. But von Hammerstein said, I took that as God's charge for my life. The words that Pastor Bonhoeffer spoke to me in those moments became the charge for my life, and I have tried to live it my entire life. Mm. And he was in his 90s. Mm. He was 17 when he heard this man. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. And mm. he was at least approaching, maybe he was in his late 80s by then, but I know he lived into his early 90s. So he's probably in his late 80s as I do the math on that. But in any case, he he really took that seriously. And, uh, you know, so it, it was to, to get that glimpse of the real Bonhoeffer and, and for me was very, very important. And to realize a lot of this transpired in one mm. man's life with whom I was speaking. It wasn't so long ago. We think of all that horror mm. as the distant past. It's as close as one man's life. Yeah. And then I think about my own parents. They lived through all of that. My father kept a contemporaneous yeah. uh, scrapbook on what was happening in Germany and all of its horrors. So, you know, these things were not so long ago. Uh, and meeting von Hammerstein brought wow. that bridge together for me. This is now. This is yeah. us. This is us now. And that's mm. why I encourage people to read Bonhoeffer now, because you'll find him so prescient. Like, what was he talking about then? Or was he talking about the world we now inhabit? Right, right. So good. Okay, last thing, and I, I promise it'll be the last thing, because uh, we're, we're to totally in um, uh, freestyle over here. So folks listening to the podcast, you're still listening in. Um, is you know the I loved hearing you talk about his humanness, you know, and his loneliness and all that was going on in him. And one other side of this that sometimes gets overlooked, or you know, sometimes gets kind of buried a little bit because it's a little different. Is you know, he had this romantic relationship or this uh, connection to um, a young German theologian. Um, I think her name was Maria von Wedemeyer. Is that right? Um, Wedemeyer, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, um, that old W in German. And he was, you know, um, I, I don't know, like, what, 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 what can we learn from that? And because, um, you know, some of these people, like, you know, 
there there's a, another part of them that is so human and you kind of you get the iconic part but you forget that these are you know broken and human longings in all of us so i don't know is there anything you want to share about that that you know it's not every day i've got someone that knows so much about bonhoeffer with me that i get to ask these things too so i, I read a little bit of it and i was like wow he was a lot older than her you know and i'm reading all this and you almost know, twice carl bart and you know there's some like real real some of these things are like they're a little like whoa i'm not sure what to do with that so i wanted to hear your take <laughs> yeah well first i'll commend everyone if you want to really know the human side of bonhoeffer and he he was terribly human. When you read letters and papers from prison, he suffered, like all of us, with guilt, with shame, with remorse, uh, with loneliness, desperate loneliness. There may have been another layer here because one of the great Bonhoeffer scholars, um, there's a book called Strange Glory by Charles Marsh, who occupies the Bonhoeffer chair at Tübingen University. Anybody who knows anything about Bonhoeffer knows how important that is, because Tübingen was Bonhoeffer's alma mater. And Charles Marsh, an American, imagine, um, it, it holds this seat in a German university, wrote a book called Strange Glory. It, it's, I think, the best biography of Bonhoeffer. And the reason I say that, uh, even though there's the 900-page gold standard uh, by Eberhard Beitka, Marsh tells us something about Bonhoeffer's inner life that nobody else has explored. One possibility is that he was a repressed, closeted gay man who had a very intimate relationship though probably not a physically consummated relationship with Eberhard Beitka. And I think Marsh makes a very convincing case that Bonhoeffer had romantic feelings, uh, strong romantic feelings, and a kind of intimate relationship with Beitka. And that may be the reason why a relationship with a woman was forestalled so long. Um, delayed in his life, and he would eventually be engaged uh, at age, uh, let me do my fact-checking, 36. Somebody's going to challenge me on that. It may have been 38 when he was engaged to uh, Maria von Wiedemeyer, who was just 18 years old. So there was this enormous age gap between them. He speaks very warmly about their kisses and their embraces. Um, so it wasn't a pretend relationship. It was a real one. But it may have been part of his conflicted um, sexual identity. We're not sure. But it's in that mix. And there's more that that speaks to his humanity including the guilt he carried for early on refusing to do a Jewish family member's funeral because of the feelings about Jews in Germany at that time. And he carried that guilt all the way to his death. Mm. And of course, he suffered with severe depression. He writes about it. Mm. 
Um, so, you know, we wonder sometimes why do these unusual people arise in human history? Mm. Um, maybe because they're able to act in remarkably courageous and bold and, and stunning ways in spite of or even with mm. their fragile pieces. In other words, they're their weaknesses, as the Bible says, becomes their strength. Mm, mm. Um, How about that? Could Bonhoeffer have been Bonhoeffer without being all those other things that we kind of erase when we make them a superhero? Mm. We erase their humanity. And in doing so, we create a caricature, a, a cartoon character, not a real Bonhoeffer, but a cartoonish Bonhoeffer. And a few writers have done that, and some filmmakers have done that. And somebody did a stage presentation that did that. I love the real Bonhoeffer with all his pain, all his so actions, yeah. all his weaknesses, all his imperfections. That's the Bonhoeffer I love and that I take great strength from. Mm. Well, what a gift this has been, this conversation with Reverend Rob Shank. Make sure y'all follow uh, the work of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute that he uh, is the founder of. Read Rob's book, Costly Grace, and maybe check out some Bonhoeffer. Dust it off and read The Cost of Discipleship. Read some of uh, the, the letters from prison. Read 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 some Bonhoeffer. And, uh, you know, in closing, Rob, I was thinking of uh, the words of one of the great Irish theologians, uh, Bono, um, you know, from YouTube, he at one point he said, "You know the the fact that the Bible's full of broken, messed up, sinful people. It's a little bit of a paraphrase, but the fact that it's just full of messed up people." He said, uh, "It used to disturb me, but now I find it a great source of comfort." <laughs> and well the fact said. that the fact that church history, uh, you know, is full of uh, really incredibly inspiring, courageous people that were also figuring it out, you know, and finding their way and struggling with loneliness and love and all the same stuff we do. Um, Bonhoeffer being one of those, it, it, it's a gift. To, so we, we shouldn't be disturbed that Bonhoeffer was human, but we should be inspired, right? <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should come up with a nickname for that Irish theologian and call him <laughs> Bonhoeffer. <laughs> no, there you go, Bono Offer. Hallelujah. You heard it here first, y'all. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. You've been listening to Reverend Thank Rob. Thank you. Taylor. Thanks for tuning in and uh, stay in touch with us at redletterchristians.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.